Let's pray together. You alone are the one who gives us life, O Lord. In you we live, move, and have our being. And yet we know that when we come to listen, our minds are distracted, our thoughts are all over the place, and we know that we need you. You with your Holy Spirit to come to help us attend to your voice amidst all the other voices that we hear. So as we open scripture, Lord, send your spirit so that the words you say may be words spoken to our hearts and may work in our minds. In Jesus we pray, amen. So we turn to John 17, and if it comes on the screen, we'll be starting at verse 20. If it's not on the screen, that's fine. And I'm reading out of the NRSV. Now the first part of the entire chapter is or the beginning of Jesus' prayer, and there are many words in there which... Uh, you, you can easily use in a different way than what John intended. So, for instance, it speaks about the Word. But you can never hear about the Word in John without remembering that at the very beginning of John, it talks about the Word that was with God and became flesh, Jesus Christ. So the word is not simply words on a piece of paper. It is deeply related to who Christ is. It speaks about truth. And very easily we can think of it in terms of what we have called in philosophy uh, propositional truth, statements about things that are true or not true. But in John, you can never hear the word truth without hearing Jesus saying, I am the truth. I'm the way, the life, the truth. And it speaks about glorifying the name, Jesus being glorified. But you can never hear glorification without also hearing that glory. Glor to glorify in the Gospel of John is deeply related to the cross. And much like in Philippians 2, where Paul says that Jesus went and descended to the cross and became nothing, and therefore God made his name greater than every name. That's the theme also of glory in the Gospel of John. So I encourage you to read it at home, the whole chapter. I'm going to read starting at verse 20. And recognize that at that time when you do read it at home, that these words are deeply, deeply connected to what Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection, giving us life. So Jesus is praying in verse 20. And he says, I ask not only on behalf of these, that is, his disciples, 
but also on behalf of all who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love which you have, with which you have loved me may also be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I first preached this sermon last year as we were coming out of COVID, speaking about unity, oneness. Now, every one of us recognizes that oneness has a kind of a theme of harmony, of symphony, And it's interesting how that works. You know when you're singing in harmony, and you know when there's dissonance, when things aren't quite right. In fact, everyone else knows it too. They could hear it immediately. There's a few people who are, I suppose, don't tone deaf, but most of us can hear it immediately. And I find it interesting how this works in so many different areas of life. One of the things I do in my spare time, in my retired time, is I'm actually chaplain for the fire department in Lacombe. And one of the things I had to learn a whole lot about in that context was trauma. Now, trauma is a huge area of uh, study these days, and we're learning a whole lot new. But one of the interesting things I heard at one point had to do with um, the empathetic part of the brain, that uh, you need to develop empathy and the like, and what happens in trauma is that that section of the brain, especially in PTSD, seems to shut down. And we become more isolated in time. And that's one of the reasons why, in order to develop that part of the brain, they, uh, they and you may have heard this, they have uh, special dogs and other animals, but especially dogs, to help with uh, soldiers who are discovering or have PTSD do a little better. I have water right over there, too. Thank you. <clears throat> I usually didn't use it, so <laughs> not a problem. Thank you. Um, so all of that, t 
to say that one of the things I learned is that the way in which you start to treat or can treat trauma is through singing in a choir. And you ask the question, why? It's because the only way you could sing in a choir is by listening to the people next to you. And the only way you can do that is by developing the empathetic part of your brain. And that seems to take people out of their deepest trauma. Now, that's not the only thing, but it's part of the story. And I find that fascinating. In order to be well, we need to be one. That's incredible. Here we are in a time when dissonance in the church is great. Listen to what God says. One of the things we've been taught is the prayer of Jesus. One of the things is that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever else you might think, you know from John 17 that one of the desires of Jesus and of the Father is that we are one. Desire of God. But it doesn't feel like it. None of us can claim that it feels like it. Division is the order of the day, it seems. COVID has fractured families, communities. You know it. I know it. It has hurt us tremendously, and that's just one. The debates around same-sex marriage have divided families and churches. We're certainly not one. Classes Alberta North has people who are affirming, non-affirming, and despite what Synod has done this past year, the fact is that we are not any more united than we were before. And we make claims and we exclude one another. And it's not just those things, it's racism. If you look at the life of the church, you know that racism is rampant throughout it. My wife He's just recently uh, read a novel on, uh, it, it deals with World War II and with uh, uh, the, the treatment of the Jewish people in France, and um, a novel, and uh, she asked me last night, so why are the Jewish people still as persecuted as they are? Why do they feel the prejudice as deeply as they do? What's going on? Why, after all these years after World War II, when we said we never, ever, ever wanted a Holocaust again, do we still hear the anti-Semitism so rampant in our culture? It's not the only stuff. Abuse allegations. 
have divided the church. If you listen to the Southern Baptist Conference of uh, churches, you will find that throughout there, it's not just women in office that is dividing them, it's also the significant abuse allegations that are within the community. Since the days of the Reformation, the divisions in the Church of Christ have come frequently and often have been accompanied by anger, and it seems like we divide about every 20 years, that despite Jesus' prayer that they may be one, as we are one. So we try to explain it. Now, I, was, I grew up in the Canadian Reformed Church, and we confessed every Sunday the Apostles' Creed, usually in the evening service, and at the Apostles' Creed, we all said, we believe in the one holy Catholic Church. If you're Nicene, you say the Nicene Creed, you add the word apostolic, the one church. How did we deal with that? Well, the first thing we did is say, well, that's obviously not true on earth, so it's got to be the invisible and the visible church. The invisible church is one, the rest of us are a pretty divided lot. Uh, that's one way of dealing with it. The other thing that we basically said was, um, we're the one church. Everyone else is a false church, and they should be joining us because we're the one church and we got it together. If you know any church, there's not a church that has got it together. But that's what we said. And when we said that, we usually said something else. We used the word they. They. And then we added lots of things. If you know what they did, you would understand. If you heard what they said, you would know. If you knew what they believed, you would say that we're the one true church. They. It's always about them. We never look at ourselves too carefully. And oftentimes we end up saying, we, we hear their words and twist them in their ugliest form. They don't believe the Bible. They, don't, they worship the preacher. They are hypocrites. They are liberals. They are conservatives. You name it. And then you have to hear Jesus' words, by the measure you measure, you will be measured. How do we measure? And we often have, in the midst of it, rather self-justifying language. But here's the question. Have we heard the heart of God? Have you heard God's desire that we are so deeply in Christ and in the Father that we are one? 
Have we heard Jesus say, do you not know that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand? Do you not know that you are paralyzed by division? And so we turn to John 17. We believe the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Why oneness? Why one? Well, we know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God. The three are distinct, but one. And for 2,000 years, we've been wrestling with that tension. We've tried to figure out how that can be. And I don't have answers to that. All I know is that whenever the church has discussed it, they said, whenever you separate them too much, you've got it wrong. Whenever you make them as if they're just one and not three, you've got it wrong. But how this all figures out, I'm not exactly sure. And so we have this wonderful thing in our confessions. If you're not in theology, you don't know this, but um, there's that lovely word, homoousion. It's part of the creed. And um, there's a debate in the church about that word, about the year 300 and beyond. And the Coptic church and the Catholic church separated at that point. Here's the thing that I just love about all that. Last year, the Coptic Church and the Catholic Church got together and talked about it. This is what they ended up saying. We may have misunderstood each other 1,700 years ago. (laughs) And that just little line told me how much and how we behave all over the doctrine of the Trinity and many other doctrines. Uh, If you want to have a good example of uh, the Trinity, um, you know, you use lots of illustrations. The one that I heard from a musician was, there's a chord, a chord has three notes. And when you play them separately, you hear the three notes, but when you play the chord, There's this wonderful harmony. So, an example that is musical, that works, apparently. Um, But here's the thing. What we see in this passage and so many others is that the Father and the Son are one. God is not divided. There is one God one Savior, we are baptized into one Lord and Father and Spirit. It's one baptism, one faith. God is not divided. They are one. The three are one. And we are a people of God who are in God, in Christ, in the Father, in the Spirit. We're not divided. There is just one Christ. And here's the thing about that. 
We live, move, and have our being, each and every one of us who are in Christ, we live, move, and have our being in this God. It's the end of the story. The other, there are others who we call they, even the enemy, is loved by God. And that's an important thing to remember. Loved by God. Our sibling rivalries cannot overcome the fact that we are, have a common life in God, in Christ. We can do great damage to each other. I just spent a week with a set of twins lovely. They love each other dearly. They can't be out of each other's presence, but boy, can they abuse each other. We can do great damage. And we can justify ourselves. But the reality is, says Jesus, each and every one of us is in Christ. They belong. Not only that, this passage also talks about the mission of the church. Our oneness results in a better mission. Now that's remarkable. We'll talk about that in a second. Just a reminder of some of the things about our oneness in the Trinity. God dwells in us through the work of the Spirit in Christ. It's grounded in the Trinity. John 3 says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The focus is on believing in Christ who came to save us. And this Jesus, says the Gospel of John, did not come in the world to condemn, but to save. This Jesus is the one in whom we live. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless you are connected to the vine, to the main stem, you do not have life. <coughs> How do you know? Well, there's lots of these connections that it speaks about, and one of the things is that you love one another as Christ has loved you. What is the fulfillment of the command to love one another? How do you experience the joy of the Lord? Loving one another. In Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. As the Apostle Paul says on numerous occasions, is Christ divided? And we all know the answer, no. that they may be one for the sake of the mission of the church. Now, here's, here's something that happened on the mission field. So in the 1800s, the church, all the one true churches that were existed, which were a lot of them, they sent missionaries throughout the world. 
every denomination. And they would come into a new region which had not heard the gospel, and six of them were preaching in the same place, all saying they were the, the true way. The missionaries got together and said, this isn't working so terribly well. What we have to learn to do is to figure out how to cooperate better, because we are preaching the one gospel. And so they got together, the missionaries did, and they developed cooperative programs. And even the Canadian Reformed Church, which knew itself as the one true church, when they went on the mission field, they said, well, we got to cooperate with our neighbors. We cannot plant a church the same place as the Baptist churches did or the other Reformed churches did. So they cooperated on the mission field. The Father and I are one, so we are called to be one for the sake of the salvation of the world. This is about our mission as well. Not only about who God is, but about our mission as God's people. God is interested in the remaking of the world, of redeeming the world. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. <coughs> and when John wrote this, there were already divisions in the church between Jews and Gentile churches and the like. You, you, you could see it. But when we look at Jesus, who did he bring together? Jew, Gentile. Matthew, the tax collector, was there, and Peter, the zealot. Matthew, the tax collector, would have been known as a collaborator with the Roman armies and the Roman uh, government. Peter, the zealot, would have been the resistance. That's a hard, common life, quite frankly. In my one congregation, there was a couple that was married, and they were married for 50 years. And after 50 years of marriage, the wife discovered that her husband was a German collaborator, which was really, really offensive because she was part of the resistance. 50 years later, they're sitting in their living room, and they discover that they actually hate each other. Well, that's the kind of Matthew and Peter there is. Barbarian and Greek philosophers, they were there. Upper class and slaves, they were all there in the church. Someone said, you should really read Romans backwards. We often start with the first part. But you should read it backwards. Start with Romans 15 and 16, where it talks about becoming one, about brotherly love and affection. And, and when you read it backwards, you start to see that one of the things that is there is that, <clears throat> is that the unity that we have in Christ is what is, in fact, going to make us better missionaries. Make us a better community. 
So all the stuff beforehand is basically saying, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone needs Christ. All have sinned. It's not just them. It's me. It's not just that they have it wrong, I have it wrong. And at the end of Romans, it tells us to be compassionate to one another about the eating of bread and about other things which are so divisive within the life of community. But you could do the same thing in Ephesians 2. You could do the same thing in Philippians. And over and over again, we discover that what is at stake is not only our unity in Christ in the triune God, but our mission in this world. God has included people we'd rather not invite to our dinner table. And that's hard. So if we are to be people of Christ in this world, who are the ones that have to come to our dinner table? There's these wonderful stories in the Gospels of Jesus coming to a Pharisee's house and then letting prostitutes come and eat with Pharisees, which would be the height of making that whole place unclean. And Jesus does it. It was an offense. Why? For the sake of the salvation of the people of this world. For that sake. Enemies will be among us. Jesus dies for them. He welcomes them. Journeys with them. Why? For the sake of the gospel. While we were yet enemies, says Jesus. Says the, uh, Paul and John. So the question then becomes, if this is the way, if this is what Jesus is saying, how do we live this out? Well, the Jesus way, which is the way of the cross. To have the same mind, says Philippians 2, as the mind of Christ, who made himself nothing, and suffered for the sake of the gospel. Remember that one story in the gospels in which it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. And, and before we get to that point, uh, the, the disciples are saying, hey, some really bad people around here and we'd rather get rid of them right now. Um, it's a lot easier, we can clean house. And then Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that's a remarkable story. The wheat and the tares is a story about uh, the two growing together. And should we pull out the tares, the weeds? Jesus says, don't. Why? For the sake of the wheat, 
What happens? Well, if you pull out the tares, you take also disrupt the roots of the wheat. And you destroy both. And Jesus is saying something there to us about how to live. If you want to become one, you become nothing. You're willing to become nothing. And you wait for God to glorify you. It's not about you, not about your certainties, not about your gripes, not about your disappointments. They're all there. It's not about that. John 15 makes it very clear that that love is a way of living, like in Philippians. It's a way that is practical that embraces, that while we are enemies, this is love, you lay down your life for your friends. You're willing. And that, we know, requires certain actions. How does a person know that they are appreciated and loved? It's not by what you say to them. It's how you listen to them. You know that to be true. When you've been properly heard and listened to, you feel deeper affection. If you know that to be true, you spend more time talking, telling, or listening. We've heard that many times. The trite way of saying it is, well, God gave you two ears, one mouth, use them in that proportion. Listening. Listening also means that you understand yourself that you might be wrong. And that's hard. My first reaction, especially trained as a Canadian Reformed person, my first reaction when someone says something different than me is to correct them. I know you're wrong. I've got better arguments than you do. This is the truth. I'll tell you what it is. Live accordingly. Period. We've done this all the time. We have to become aware that we might be wrong that we're limited in our vision, that we have biases, and only someone else is going to point them out to us. And we need to listen. And what it means is that we all live in this amazing tension. We will not all agree. Our experiences, our stories shape our fears, and our hopes. Last night, as I was reading a book on theology, uh, understanding Paul with the, reform- with the Reformers, it talked about how, uh, how the tension was constantly there. There's this and there's this. How do you explain both good works and faith and how they cooperate and the like? And there's been 2,000 years of discussion within the church about it, and we're always afraid we're going to get it wrong. And what we always want to do is defend the grace of God. 
We've done that over and over again, and we're still trying to figure out exactly how do we talk about the grace of God and speak about faith and the works, our works, in that connection. And we think we have a formula that works fairly well and within the Reformed tradition, as he calls it, a grammar, and then something new comes up, which happens in every generation, and we have the discussion all over again. It's how it happens. We live in the tension. And God has us in Christ in the midst of that, holds us in Christ, loves us in Christ, so that each one of us can say, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, period. And I have to trust that my God who is your God, will lead you and me in our path in the way of Christ. I don't have to do what the Holy Spirit has to do in your life. But I do have to listen to the Spirit in my life, even when it comes through words from people who disagree with me. So I can say... You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we walk together in oneness, not because we've got it all together, but because we live in the tension of walking together on the way to a deeper commitment to Christ. And we choose to see each other not through the eyes of an enemy, but through the eyes of a Christ who has loved each one of us. We choose to love because we too were loved. It's a cross-shaped loving. We sacrifice. And we do it for the sake of God's redeeming mission in this world. We do it in our relationships. We do it as we die to ourselves and live to Christ. We do it when we live the resurrected life in Christ. We do it together, and we work through the challenges. We live in our tensions because Christ is not divided. And how we live that tension in unity, in humility, in love, becomes a testimony of the life, that Christ, the life of Christ in us. And when others see, they will know that there is a God who in Christ has redeemed us and works together to make us one. This is the Christ. May we choose to bear witness to Christ in how we relate to one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you know us. You know all the things we have said and the things we have claimed. You know our passion for you and our deep concern for the gospel. You know. 
Teach us, Lord, to listen to your voice speaking in the quiets of our heart. Help us to hear how you teach us, correct us, mold us, shape us. Help us to walk with you, knowing that we belong with you and nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing in this world, not our divisions, not the different ways in which we have come to resolve some of the tensions. Nothing can separate us from your love. And so we pray, Lord, that we might indeed be a people who listen to you, walk together in love for the sake of your gospel in this world, for the sake of a testimony to who you are in us. Hear our prayer, Lord, for your sake and for your glory. Amen.